0: Mississippi Crop Situation Podcast featuring the Crop Doctors. Good morning from the what are we in Tom the, the Cotton Mill?
1: This is the Cotton Mill facility
2: in, in Starkville, Starkville
0: Mississippi. Are we technically on campus, Doctor Bird?
1: We are now because Mississippi State Bought University yeah. owns this piece of property. Yeah. That's right.
0: So we are on the campus of Mississippi State. We're at the row crop short course, so we'll probably drop this episode sometime in February. So it's been a, a few weeks since we recorded it. But we got Dr. John Bird here, long-time weed scientist with Mississippi State. And then Dr. David Russell from Auburn. David's a Mississippi guy, went to Mississippi State, and he is currently an extension, extension weed scientist. Is that right? That's right. At, at Auburn University and, I guess, recently moved to the actual campus. On the main Auburn. campus now. Yeah. So David's in Auburn. Tom's got a connection to Auburn. I, I do, no, two degrees at Auburn. I have no connection to Auburn other than a bunch of friends that went to Auburn.
2: No, uh, no, 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 no. You have well, a bunch of friends and one of your closest friends went to Auburn yeah. because he and I were in classes
1: together. That's right. So Dr. little Perry. Daniel
2: Stevenson in those
1: days. Yeah, but you know there's a strong Auburn, used to be a strong Auburn is. connection at Mississippi State yeah. with Doc, Joe Street. Doc
0: Street hired me. That's right.
1: Gene Wills. Mm-hmm. and That's right. Charles Ed Snipes. Right. Yule Coats. I mean, there's been a history of Auburnites in the weed control arena in Dr. Mississippi. Gail Buchanan? Gail Buchanan, yeah.
0: Dr. Byrd, this has been a long time coming on the podcast. So I'm pretty excited. I always like to give John an open mic and just let him talk. <laughs>
1: you know, Jason, this reminds me, I told y'all before we started, this reminds me of the olden days when John Wells would, in the First floor of the boss building would call us down to do radio programs.
0: It's basically a radio program. It's just we release it when we want to.
2: Yeah. And it's just on the Internet, so it's not necessarily the old radio. It's new radio. Yeah. No, no FM waves
1: to carry the sound. In a really
2: old building, that's what I was going to say, that this is yeah. a portion of the building we didn't even know existed until we were walking back here last night, and Jason and I were like, Never y'all, been back here before.
0: <laughs> y'all give us a pass on the sound. We got three or four humongous windows, and the other three walls are brick. So if it sounds like Tom's voice is bouncing off the walls, that's because it is.
1: No, if we, it sounds like we're in a dungeon, yeah. Jason, it's, <laughs> we almost are. It's a nice basement. That's a good basement reverb to it.
0: David, tell folks some of your background, because I mean, you do have a big connection to the state and naturally to weed science. And I'll just go ahead and say David's here to monitor Dr. Bird because he would have better skills at that than Tom or I.
3: I grew up in South Mississippi. Uh, Brookhaven is my hometown. Came to Mississippi State as an undergrad, transferred from junior college uh, in 2005, and started my degree in landscape architecture and landscape contracting. Switched over in... um, 2010 to agronomy got my master's under Dr. Baldwin in agronomy and was working on uh, plant establishment native grass habitats and then Dr. Bird picked me up in the end of 2012 uh, 2013 I believe uh, after I finished his former research associate had uh, retired and had a position to fill and he was gracious to come find me while I was looking for a job full-time position and I was kind of Playing with the idea of getting my doctorate degree, and he had an opening, and uh, I started in late summer, fall of uh, 2013, I believe. Shortly after that, we had our first kid. Ava came along, started a new job, uh, had a new baby, and started my PhD all at the same time.
1: Incidentally, I've got another research associate that just had a baby last week, David, so that may be in the water in in Dorman Dorman. Hall.
3: (laughs) So I was there, I, I finished under Dr. Bird there about 2017, finished my doctorate there and then continued to work as his uh, extension associate through 2019 whenever I uh, applied and got the job at Auburn. So quite a long time in at, 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 at Starkville at Mississippi State, so I'm quite fond of this place.
0: Well, John, that was a solid move hiring David. I've always thought a lot of David and I know he's doing a good job for growers in the state of Alabama. Yep. So before we start on the topic, which I'm still I'm not 100% clear on the topic, but that's that's good. We always ask some kind of silly question, John, and the question for you has got to relate to food. And, and So give me the lowdown on chicken gizzards in Mississippi.
1: Jason, if you're looking for chicken gizzards in this state, you have got to drive Highway 45. Because all the way from Corinth to State Line, there are a number of convenience stores that will have fresh, hot, delicious chicken gizzards. But the best have to be at the Chevron Station in West Point. Okay. Absolutely. And, I mean, there'll be... They'll be hot at 7 o'clock in the morning. You can have them for breakfast, or they'll be hot at 9 o'clock at night. It doesn't matter what time you go by. So have you sampled them at both times of the day? I have sampled them, Tom, at all times of the day and night.
0: I
3: have a story.
0: I'll, 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 <laughs> offer, the, I'll offer the Double Quick in Itabina.
1: The Double Quick is a good stop, too, if you go in east or west.
3: So I had just started with Dr. Bird. Like I said, in 2013, and we were going up to Lexington, Kentucky, for Lexington. a Dow Pasture Summit. We were rolling through West Point well before daylight. I'd have to say we, we hit that Chevron station about 5 o'clock in the morning. I thought Dr. Bird was just going in for a cup of coffee. He came out with a piping hot basket of chicken gizzards that just came out of the grease.
0: Were you with Bird that day when we were coming back from Oklahoma City and bumped into him at the barbecue place in Oklahoma. I was. So me and Ben me and Ben and Tamika Sanders, Tom, we're coming back from the weed science meeting in Oklahoma City. So we're driving down the interstate. You know, it gets to be lunchtime. Like we're, so we're Googling places to eat. and so there's a barbecue place up here. So it's like a trailer. In the middle of nowhere. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so we walked in. There sits Bert and David. <laughs> it's like, what are the odds? <laughs> it's a gift. You it's should gift. have
2: known at that point in time that you were in the right
0: place. That's <laughs> absolutely correct. So I, I debated, John, between chicken gizzards and bologna, because I know you have a fondness <laughs> for processed meat, too. you uh, got that right, too. <laughs> All right, so we have effectively killed eight or nine minutes uh, talking about non-weed science related stuff, but so, John, you've been a weed scientist in our state for a a number of years, so you've seen a lot of stuff change over time, and then you're on the program today for the short course in the, I guess we call it a weed science section, but on with a lot of us row crop guys and I know you've grew up on row crops, cut your teeth on that, and now you have other interests working for Mississippi State. But tell us what's on your mind related to weed science in, in Mississippi right now.
1: Well, you know one of the things I plan to cover today, Jason, in my presentation, the lack of new herbicides that we've got, that we've seen over the course of my 30 year career. That's a fact. I, I found an article that uh, Steve Duke was quoted in, American Chemical Society newsletter. Herbicide discovery peaked in the 90s with over 60 new active ingredients. Between 2000 and
0: 2010, fewer than 20. See, I would have so said it would have peaked in the 80s even. Well,
1: he said it peaked in the 90s with over 60 so, so my point is, we've got to learn to use the technology that we still have, and we've got to protect it. And I think herbicide rotation is an important part of that protection, regardless of, of the commodities that you're growing.
0: You know, I was over here last week, and I talked to the intro weed science class. And so I got a slide that's got all the resistant weeds on it in Mississippi and at one point, we had more than any other state. Well, no, no, we had more glyphosate resistant species than any other state. I don't know that that's still the case. But either way, it's a lengthy list. The first one was, I believe, cocklebur resistant to MSMA.
1: It- Actually, I think some of the guys at Stoneville had found some Johnson grass resistant to X-rays Treflin prior to that. Okay. Back in the, must have been the, mid
0: 1980s yeah well, and the cocklebur of course was probably mid to late
1: 80s late 80s early 90s
0: and then of course it's ballooned from there the point being that gives credence to what you're saying is herbicide rotation is a way to or i say only one of the major ways to avoid things like that because if you if you don't learn from history you're doomed to repeat it right
1: Yeah, we've heard that before
0: and I think we are. I mean, I think we're learning from it. If we're talking about presentations today, mine's on grass control, and a lot of the questions right now are wrapped up around Johnson grass, and Johnson grass is a scourge in parts of the Delta, and and was. I mean, many, many years ago, prior to commercializing the Roundup Ready system, it was well, arguably had, one of the, the worst grami- weeds. We had
1: the graminocides and, and prior to the graminicides like Post and Fusillate and Select, you know, we were using 2X rates of Treflan, which could be t- pretty detrimental to cotton seedlings trying to get them yeah. started early in the year.
0: But I guess my point is there was a, a time period in there where Johnson grass was kind of out of sight, out of mind, and the whole time it was just kind of sitting there simmering under the surface, and now it because of new cases of herbicide resistance has become one of the big driver weeds again.
1: I need to get you, Jason, on your way back, if I don't get it before then. I thought about something the other day. I was leaving the Delta. I went to help my daughter and son-in-law with their soybean harvest. And as I was finishing up and leaving there just north of Indianola, I looked out across the field. Of course, it was still pretty early early in the fall. Full of red vine. Oh, yeah. Full of red vine. You know, all the dicamba, all the Roundup Ready we've planted since 1996. We're still fighting them old tough perennial weeds. Johnson Glarus included. Yeah. So, so those perennials, man, they are tough.
0: Get a lot of questions about that that time of year because one of the strategies for managing red vine was fall applications of heavy rates of dicamba. dicamba. And That's so right. then the – it would make sense that that would possibly work on Johnson grass too, not dicamba, obviously, but a herbicide that that species is susceptible to. I don't know that it does. Uh, We had Daniel Stevenson up here last year at this meeting talking about that, and he tried it and felt like it didn't in the the years that he did it. Then as he and I were talking about it through the summer last year, we stumbled upon, well, maybe it worked And it was just the years that he did it, the fall weather was such that it didn't. So point being, it was too dry and it was too warm for it to work, like you would thinking about timing that treatment some period of time in close proximity to a freeze or a frost.
1: Well, not only you brought up a good
0: point, Jason,
1: with weather, because we went through
0: this summer
1: one of the driest years on record. And I think a lot of times people fail to remember the importance of having good growing conditions when you make these herbicide applications. If those plants aren't actively growing, we know the herbicide doesn't have much of a chance to do what it's supposed to do. And you may not see that as frequently dealing with with cotton and soybeans or corn in the early growing season but when you start dealing with forages or you're dealing with weeds in row crop in in non-crop situations then we're spreading that herbicide application over a much wider time of the year and so we get into years like we had this year when it's so dry in the fall those herbicides that are translocated in the plants that plant has to be actively growing with good growing conditions for it to work effectively otherwise you're just wasting your money
0: how did that shake out in alabama in 23 david i mean did, did y'all have the challenges that we had in parts of mississippi
3: we absolutely did uh and, and like dr bird had, had mentioned you know i've got forage and non-crop right away responsibility there too and i would say in row crop it ended up being goosegrass this year we do have pockets where the Echinochloa species, the barnyard grass, jungle rices pop up, especially in wet years. But this year, cotton and soybean really seem to be goose grass. And and I'll talk about that today. Actually, my talk's going to focus on grassy weeds uh, in crops. But as he mentioned in forages and non-crop, you know, those perennial grasses, there's just not much option. Very few, and I'll mention Johnson grass because you've already brought it up, in areas where we don't have resistance, you know, the sulfonylureas still work mostly. You know, Bermuda grass, Bahia grass, you can still knock those out uh, for a season or two, but we just quit spraying late summer.
1: And I think the sulfonylurea chemistry, I don't know what you see in row crop situations, but I think that group of chemistry, the sulfonylureas, are more susceptible to environmental, sens- or more sensitive to effectiveness under adverse environments than a lot of the other herbicides that, that are available to producers.
0: I would agree with that. I hadn't really thought about it, but just off the top of my head, I would say, yeah, we got some rice herbicides. Several yeah. of those are, yeah. are sulfonylureas and that that right. are affected similarly. And then we don't use a lot of those ALS herbicides in our row crops because of the palmer. The Palmer populations are so resistant to it. The value that they offer in some of the other species does not outweigh the fact that they would just have zero effect on Palmer. And I say that, and as I'm saying it, I'm thinking, and we have started plugging some of those back in for some of these other weeds that were kind of missing in extend crops. Case in point would be prickly cider. Just became an absolute devil again, really overnight. That's been one of my biggest surprises on the extend technology is how fast prickly side ascended back up in the list of troublesome weeds because it was always there. I mean, it wasn't like we found a a new weed. It was always there, but we were controlling it with something else. And then we removed what, and I don't, I haven't never been able to exactly identify that something else. I kind of think it's formesophon, which is not rated real high on it to start with. But that's the only thing that once we started using extend widespread that would have kind of come out of the system, it, particularly in soybeans
1: I've heard some old-timers and I'm, I'm using the word old-timers as in back in the Trefland days, Elanco was accused of adding prickly cider teaweed seed to the trefland Jason: I've, I've heard
0: people say that
1: so, so you release. You, you control the crabgrass and other grasses that Treffland was quite effective on, and all of a sudden there's no competition for the teaweed or the prickly cider. And so it just
0: explodes. I have seen some fields that it would absolutely blow your mind, the population that's there. I mean, I don't have any idea what it would be per square foot. You know, I've had pictures of it everywhere, just solid stands, and the worst place was after that backwater flood. And, of course, that seed's going to float. It's, a, right, it's got that right. whatever around the outside of the seed is going to float. But, I mean, you know. But, I, but
1: it's one of those, if you let it get over an inch and a half tall. You're done. It's it's home free. Yep. You've got to be timely with your application with prickly cider.
0: And, and an inch and a half is, is tiny. Yes. I mean, it's, it's just unbelievable Hard to see. Tiny.
1: Really, from the pickup, you've got to get out and walk those fields.
2: John, you, you've got. A wealth of knowledge which is something that I always appreciate sitting and listening and your comments about rotating chemistries are so important not just in weed science but talk a little bit about bringing back some of these older thought processes in addition to using things like Treflan for managing weeds but Where else do some of those older thought processes, for lack of a better term, really fit into what's going on in row crop production agriculture today?
1: One of the concerns that I have as a weed scientist is once you plant some of these new cover crops or new crops, Tom, biofuel, for example, or cover crops, those that are perennial or that produce hard seed that may persist in the environment? What are the long-term... Because I feel like I've spent my career trying to help producers over the last 30 years clean up problems that a previous generation thought was a good idea. Johnson grass, you've mentioned Johnson grass, and I've wondered how much did the war between the states, the war of northern aggression, play... In Johnson grass being spread across the United States.
0: Well, I mean, that's what we were all taught in school that that's where it that was the time that it moved, was brought into the U.S.
1: And think about the amount of feed required to, to feed those horses that were involved in that
0: conflict. And wasn't Joe Hooker the one that was given credit for bringing it in? Uh, la, 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 la. Gen- General Hooker.
1: Actually, what I have read is a governor, Means, in South Carolina, sent somebody to Turkey to teach them how to grow cotton. And one of the things that came back from that excursion was Johnson grass in the early 1800s. Okay, And then it showed up, David, in Alabama, Colonel Johnson planted it And in fact, Jason, you might find this interesting. I've got an electronic copy. I've not been able to find a hard copy of an individual that was a professor at Mississippi State that wrote a book on forages. It was published in 1887, the first year there were students on the Mississippi State campus. And the inside cover is an advertisement for Johnson Grass. Johnson Grass Seed,
3: Johnson Grass Hay. Tested it on the experiment stations in the black belt.
1: So my point is we've got to think about long term and we plant some of these cover crops like sun hemp. That's one that I get lots of questions. Our current commissioner of agriculture is wanting to approve it because he's got getting pushed from individuals to release this, because it's currently prohibited by the Mississippi seed laws. Prohibit the planting of crotalaria which sun hemp is a crotillaria.
0: Explain to our listeners what that means, because there's other crotillarias. That, that rule is in place because of other crotillaria species.
1: Because we planted showy crotillaria back in the 30s as a manure crop before we had a lot of options for synthetic fertilizers. Building organic matter, soils that had been depleted of organic matter. We needed something to refurbish those soils, add add those components back into the soil to make them more productive. And showy crotillaria was one that people planted as a green manure crop, and if you go to South Mississippi, you still find it popping up. It produces seed that are toxic to birds. Well, do we want to hurt the turkey populations or the bobwhite populations or even the mockingbirds and thrashers? We're under increased scrutiny today from endangered species. And there are a number of birds that are on that endangered species list. So I think about these types of of potential implications that some of these crops, Tom, are going to have for future generations. And some of the challenges as we see fewer and fewer people involved in traditional agriculture. And so rules are being made by politicians that listen to the masses, which ain't agriculture, then what options are going to be available then?
2: Your comment before we started definitely was fascinating that nobody really comes up with anything new. We're just recycling we old just thoughts recycle and them. recycling technologies that somebody's labeling as new. But if you start digging through the literature or looking for some of these older books that have been produced at universities, look at what they talk about.
1: I've spent... Maybe way too much time the last few weeks going through USDA's yearly report, their yearbook of agriculture, which before the yearbook of agriculture, it was report of the commissioner of agriculture trying to figure out some of this weed science technology. And in fact, Jason, I found in the 1895 yearbook of agriculture, guess what was promoted as a new vegetable crop for people in this country? I'm going to give uh, you one guess.
0: Let me think. Vegetable crop. Is it a weed now? Yes, sir, buddy. Oh, man. I don't know. John put me on the spot. Uh, I'm scared to even throw out a name. How about Palmer Amaranth? Okay. New
1: vegetable crop. What, As what is A new vegetable.
0: You see it. Like uh, eating
1: spinach so or leafy greens? leafy greens.
0: Not not Palmer but you'll see in the, and I won't even say the name of the brand because it's a pretty common brand, but the grocery store, they'll have some flaxseed, almond flour stuff, but there's a brand, and you'll see occasionally amaranth, amaranth. seed. I've seen it. An amaranth meal.
2: Amaranth flour, I've seen somewhere. Yeah. I think it was
1: advertised. And that's a different species. Yeah. It is a different it, species. That is correct. Although we, I had a graduate student in nutrition do a nutritional analysis of that versus palmer amaranth seed, and they're basically the same.
0: We used to not have Palmer too. We used to have a pretty good variety of pigweed species until Palmer showed up and basically bred them all out of the gene pool. So we know that could happen
3: pretty quickly. Did do a taste test of that that comparison between the commercial variety she, and she the wild did, variety?
1: Yeah, she she made the she made muffins with those or was it something else? You know, the Mexican population, Central Americans, popped that grain and or cooked it I, like. Porridge.
0: Well, I was, well, was going to say, I've had it before like popcorn. And naturally, the puff is very small because that seed is tiny. micro. It was puffed out, and it was kind of sweetened.
1: We made some like, in fact, I played around with some kind of like making Cracker Jacks.
0: Okay. You know how you yep.
1: take kernels of corn, kernel, but uh-huh. popcorn and then make Cracker Jacks out of it. We did kind of the same thing. But the 1895 yearbook of agriculture additions to our vegetable dietary... Palmer amaranth was one that was promoted as a potential new leafy green.
0: Jason Kreutz always said when he was still engaged in weed science, if you could figure out how to grow Palmer amaranth as a monocrop, then you could kill it. Because he said anything we grow in a monocrop inevitably runs into new problems.
1: I I contend the issue with it is harvesting.
0: Oh, no doubt, yeah. All
1: right, uh, uh, you know... (laughs) Back, when, back in the mid-90s when we were trying to grow canola, I had some growers tell me you lose half of it going to the feed mill. And, and, and so with, with something like a pigweed of any type, if you, even if you could get that seed in a hopper-bottom truck, you spread can't it get all, it to the mill. Spread it all over the highway. Exactly. Oh, yeah. Exactly.
0: I've shown pictures in the past of the sides of the road, you know, divided highway going towards the grain elevator, and there would be Palmer all along the roadside, and then the four-lane going away from the grain elevator, there'll not be any Palmer. Yeah. I have run a plot combine through patches of Palmer, you know, trying to get seed, and I would say your harvest efficiency is like 2%. Not very good.
2: All right, I'm going to ask the the two weed scientists we have on as guests here to kind of – Give us an idea of what they think are the biggest issues that could impact weed science moving forward. So David, we'll start with you. What What do you think is the biggest issue moving forward for weed science from a standpoint in production agriculture?
3: I think it may take a lot of growers by surprise to know that it, from our perspective, or at least my perspective, and, and of course, I'm influenced by other weed scientists colleagues, but I do think it's from the regulatory standpoint and the regulatory agencies, and the side of the political aspects that influence uh, production agriculture, and and specifically, I'm I'm talking about the Endangered Species Act, and I know uh, Dr. Culpepper will be on here um, uh, at some point to to discuss that, but, you know, I think there are going to be far-reaching implications to production agriculture regarding just what we can and can't do. You know, I'm In Alabama now, and and prior to taking this job, I just, I did not realize the diversity, both in agriculture and the just geography, soil types, you know, we're on the bottom end of the Appalachian foothills there, and I think we have over 200 species that are on the threatened and endangered list. And so, when you think about the rules coming out of the EPA and the U.S. Fish and Wildlife, and implications that it may have to production agriculture as far as how we apply pesticides and what we can do to our field borders uh, to to save these species on their list, I think it's going to take, you know, if they can really enforce it, I think it's going to take a lot of people by surprise if they're not already engaged and, and knowledgeable of the issues coming. So, you know, there's no new chemistry. We've already discussed that, and so it's just kind of, Being studious with what we've got and just being knowledgeable about the issues coming down. I know, Dr. Bird, you probably got another viewpoint there.
1: I'm going to take it a slightly different angle. I I, I did listen to the CAST podcast or video, Zoom, whatever the heck you want to call it. And I think one of the messages Dr. Culpepper is going to bring today is you got to follow the science. But I also think, too, with society today and some of the beliefs we've had as scientists, and we're all scientists, we believe in science. But does the general population believe in science? So what have we done to destroy the general population belief in science as a society? What have our politicians done to destroy the validity Of science,
3: so you're saying it's a mentality. It it transcends the human emotion and wrapped up. It it transcends that into how science is portrayed in production agriculture.
1: Can't just say you got to follow the science because what is science now? How valid is how valid is the science? The principles that you learned in elementary school, we're now saying may not be right.
0: Well in a news brief soundbite clickbait culture you just need clicks right or you just need ratings or you just need we're focused whatever. on
2: occupying 24 hour news cycle on a given number of channels podcasts and everything else and we've taken the focus away from those of us that are at this table and the research that we conduct to provide that scientific background
1: and knowledge. That hard science.
2: To not necessarily influence in using that word, but to constructively organize thought with that scientific background to move belief forward and actually influence policy. I agree and that's a that's a hard thing to talk to the general public about especially when you put belief in something before understanding and comprehension of the science.
1: Because science takes time.
2: We get tripped up sometimes because we focus on a little nuance based on what we understand, and may we may think that that's important, when in a lot of cases,
0: it might not be. Well, here's two examples. We mentioned that weather early and its effect on possibly Johnson grass management. Yeah. That took two years, and you're still not feel real good about it because the weather could be different in year three or year four and completely move the needle on the results. And then before we came in here, I was talking to a guy's county agent, and we were talking about problem solving and the fact that everybody wants an answer right now, and so it's affected the way he does his job. It's affected the way I do my job, Tom, you, and and you, both of y'all. We need an answer, and we need it right now, and we don't have time to wait for the science to but, provide the answer. And some things there's not a simple answer to. It takes time to develop an answer.
1: Look at what what temperatures we had three days before Christmas, this past Christmas. I mean, that was a temperature change that has never Occurred before.
0: It had dramatic effects on a lot of different things.
1: Exactly. It'll take decades to see what long term effect that had.
3: Yeah. And the soil weed seed bank is just, there's so <laughs> many unknowns there. I mean, I can't tell you the, the number of times, and, and again, this is forage and non crop areas, but somebody's done a little bit something different in their production practice one particular year or they've hit a midsummer drought. Or they've got excessive rainfall, and then the next season, all of a sudden, bam. I've never seen this before. <laughs> but that weed seed's probably been sitting there for no telling how many decades.
1: Uh, I, I incorporate Dr. Beale's buried seed experiment from Michigan State University in almost all my presentations. Talked about it last year at this meeting. Yep.
2: This would be the second time I'd brought this up, but you remember the, the field they've done a bunch of leveling on north of the Bogue on 61 and how many
0: cockleburrs
2: had come up not only in the field itself, but on the, the pad outside the area where they had around the field edge, and they ran through there and mowed them. It's not something you run across with any regularity.
1: Not, don't see cocklebur much anymore.
2: You, you do on, sand, on, on any of the sandbars in the Mississippi River mm-hmm. as well, yeah. but they don't get up big and tall. Something whacks
0: them. John, David, I know... We all got places we need to be this morning. I could talk to y'all for a, a while still. But thank y'all so much. Like I said, John, it's been a long time coming. I didn't want to record a podcast with you over the phone. I knew I wanted to sit down and do it in person. And uh, so glad we had the opportunity to get this done this year. And David, man, thanks for coming over from Auburn and, uh, and talking with us today, too. Yeah, thanks for the invitation.
1: I enjoyed it.
2: Good to see y'all. We really appreciate it.